Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I am joined as I am from time to time by Dr. Larry Chap, my friend who is Skyping in from Eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, I think if not on his farm, then close to his farm. I, I forget uh, with this backdrop I'm looking at, Dr. Chap, if this is on the farm or if this is in your, your no, other- your, my, my, our, our little house in Scranton. The, 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 the little city house, <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, well, house. well, coming to us from the, uh, the hometown of The Office, uh, for those who are familiar with the television show in That's Scranton, right. Pennsylvania. Uh, but Dr. Chap is back fresh from vacation, no doubt rested and, and ready to dive into some great material here. Uh, Dr. Chap and I are gonna talk about nature and grace in a, a future forthcoming episode. We're trying to pin down the third guest for that one. We've, we've got some interesting things we want to talk about. But as he and I were going back and forth talking about what we will talk about today, we thought it would be a good idea to talk about the universal call to holiness in a tangible way. Because so many of our conversations, Larry, have been about the church, the crisis in the church, the conflict between the trads and the not-so-trads. And we've talked about how the true way out of the church's problems today is holiness, not holiness in an esoteric sense, not holiness in a strictly liturgical sense, but holiness in a personal sense, the personal call to holiness. And we've really only touched on that before, but what I'd like to do in this discussion is talk about the personal call to holiness through the lens of two of your heroes, and that's Dorothy Day and Peter Morin, uh, what they did, uh, the Catholic worker movement that they started, and how they are models of holiness for us Catholics today living in 2021. Absolutely. Sounds good. So let's start here. Dorothy Day. What's uh, Give us an, a brief sketch of her life. Who was she? When did she live? She was not born Catholic, I know. She had a, a later coming to faith. So tell us, give us a brief sketch of her life, and then I'll ask you the same for Peter Morin. Yeah, uh, Dorothy Day was, uh, you know, an East Coaster all her life, New York, uh, and she was uh, not born a Catholic, and uh, she grew up rather lukewarm towards religion, and and actually uh, became became a kind of freelance journalist and moved in very avant-garde circles in New York City, uh, you know, in in the cafe culture circles of New York City, hanging out with people like Eugene, the playwright Eugene O'Neill, and so forth having multiple affairs with men and, and that kind of thing. She actually, uh, at one point, had an abortion even during this period. She flirted with Marxism. She was a big champion of workers' rights and down with capitalism and all that kind of thing. Uh, but it was after the birth of her first child, uh, or only child, her, uh, that she uh, started thinking more deeply about religious things, about the faith. And uh, I don't want to go into too much detail, but she, she does eventually uh, come to see the truth of Catholicism, and she converts uh, to Catholicism and has her child baptized, which actually led to a very, very painful breakup with her sort of common-law husband, Forster, uh, who she loved deeply, deeply, but she realized he didn't like her conversion or the baptism of their child, and he certainly disagreed with her religious conversion, so they parted ways, and I, I think that remained a deep wound in her life, her entire life. But as soon as she became a Catholic, she uh, she became a rather radical Catholic in, in one sense, where not in a liberal sense or a, a sort of dissenting sense. She was the most orthodox of Catholics. She believed everything that the Church teaches, even in sexual matters, even in things like contraception. She completely accepted the Orthodox faith and the authority of the church. 
but what she what was all about was that, that the church needed to be more committed to the poor, to the disenfranchised. Now you have to remember the Catholic worker movement started, and I'll get back to that, in the 30s during the height of the Great Depression. And there weren't, there, you know, a lot of social safety nets or anything like that for workers. And uh, pretty much, if you were out of work, you, you had to rely on the charity of churches and the people of goodwill in order to survive. So she and her co-friend, Peter Morin, started what they called Houses of Hospitality, which are essentially soup kitchens and emergency shelters for the homeless. Um, and, I mean, she, then she stayed at that for, for decades. She was also, though, a, a well-known pacifist. Uh, she didn't say that the church ought to embrace pacifism and make it a dogma or something, because, like I said, she was orthodox. But she believed in it passionately as one of the evangelical options uh, that a Catholic could choose. And, indeed, the church does eventually come around to acknowledging that a pacifist stance can be something that a Catholic can engage in, in in conscience. Then there was, uh, and so she was at that for many decades, and you know, and then she was involved in the civil rights movement and in the uh, migrant workers' mo uh, fight for justice and, and anti-Vietnam War and, and this kind of stuff that was all, you know, sort of big in the 60s. I can attest to that I'm old enough to remember. All right. Uh, but unfortunately, the movement she started drifted away from her Orthodox Catholic faith, and that caused her a, a, a great deal of pain because the, the Catholic work movement that she founded, she did not want to be top-down, heavy, authoritarian. She didn't want to be, to be linked to her authority. She wanted holiness and orthodoxy and faith to bubble up from below. And so the movement she started was just ill-equipped to have any sort of coherent sort of authority structure, if you want to put it that way, beyond the charism of her personality. And uh, once the 60s hit, the movement really did kind of spin off in kind of leftist, uh, secularizing directions, uh, which is why I think a lot of Orthodox Catholics, and probably a lot of your listeners, uh, who don't know much about Dorothy Day would say, well, wait a minute, Dorothy Day, Catholic workers, they're a bunch of Marxist agitators and so on and so forth. Well, that might be true for a, of a lot of Catholic workers, but it wasn't true of Dorothy Day. She was as orthodox as they come, which is why Cardinal Dolan was pushing, is pushing her cause for uh, canonization. She might have remained just a journalist had she not met then the French itinerant sort of autodidact, self-taught guy, Peter Morin, who was studying to be a Christian brother in France for years. He didn't have any crisis of faith. He didn't start off a secularist and come to the faith. There's no seven-story Mountain Thomas Merton autobiography there. He was Catholic in his bones from the time he was a little kid. And uh, he eventually uh, left France to escape what became a kind of endless conscription into the French army uh, after World War I. And, you know, once in the army, it was like you were always in the army, and he was constantly getting called back up again. So he, he went to Canada first, had various odd jobs, then down into the United States. And throughout it all, he started to, he's a very, very intelligent, well-read man, like I said, self-taught. He knew all of the great Catholic authors, both in the tradition and in the 20th century. And he was a big, big devotee of subsidiarity, distributism, uh, personalism, these sorts of things that were big in the 20s and 30s, and uh, really gave Dorothy Day the program, as he called it, cult, culture, and cultivation. In other words, cult, an emphasis on the Eucharist and the sacraments, 
culture, that we need to pay attention to the poor and to evangelizing the culture by attending to the poor. And then cultivation. He believed in Catholic worker farms, which is what we are doing, my wife and I. The idea that you would have uh, an agrarian element to the Catholic worker movement. It wasn't just to grow food for the poor and to send it into the houses of hospitality. It was also to a, a kind of, before his time, a kind of back-to-the-land movement uh, that wanted to emphasize a sort of Benedictine agrarian spirituality. And all of that, and Dorothy Day uh, was, was a Benedictine oblate, uh, as are my wife and I. Uh, so their spirituality was very monastic in its own way. So th that, in, in, then sadly, Peter Morin passed away after um, apparently having Alzheimer's in, in the late 40s. Uh, so he was only on the scene for maybe a couple of decades as an influence in the movement. That, that makes sense. I, I want to go back to um, your illustration of her as a convert. Uh, and I also want to confess that, you know, before I had met you and really dug deep into the life of Dorothy Day and understood more about her, I fell into that group of people who associated her with the current Catholic worker movement. And so I thought, you know, I, I didn't doubt her salvation. I'll put it that way. I certainly didn't, didn't do that. It's not for, it's not for me to doubt the salvation uh, of people, but I did, I did wonder how faithfully she was holding to the church's teaching on various matters. Um, and since I've met you, I've realized that actually, no, she was, she was quite a zealous convert. Um, and it reminds me of how people have said before, like that they wish that they were a convert, you know, it's a cradle Catholic and they wish that they were a convert because converts tend to have this, this dynamism, this zeal coming into the church. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're born into an affluent family, uh, money is nothing to you and you'll spend it like it's nothing. If you, if you earn your way into affluence, you'll recognize the value of money and uh, you'll be really careful what you spend it on. Or sometimes you'll go the other way and, and you'll you know blow all your money because you've never had anything before, et cetera. But the point is coming into the church, you finally realize what you have. You, you can recognize this pearl of great price that is now yours to possess because you only saw it from without, from before. Whereas if you're born into the church, it's, that's not necessarily the case. Now, obviously, there are people who are born into the church, many, many saints among them, who grow up to become very holy men and women who do recognize the pearl of great price. But it's it's maybe a little gift, uh, a little gift of the spirit, that it's perhaps easier to see that with fresh eyes coming into the faith as an adult rather than being born into it as a child. Would you agree? Well, I agree completely, and, and uh, before, I, before I go into more detail about conversion and, and, and what that does in terms of a person's faith, I want to be clear about a, a comment, too, I made. I don't want to be overly critical of the current Catholic worker movement, uh, mainly because I'm not all really that conversant in all of the various Catholic worker houses that are out there. I, I, I know that there are a lot of very, very secularized, almost anti-Catholic uh, Catholic worker houses out there, uh, but there are also seeds of hope. There are pockets here and there of, of very faithful Catholic workers that are out there trying to follow Dorothy's example. So I, I don't want your listeners to think that I'm on here as a holier-than-thou Catholic worker condemning all the others. I simply am, am largely uh, ignorant of a whole, the whole larger world of Catholic workers. I know the one in New York and so forth. Um, so I, I don't want to speak for all of them, and I'm sure there's a lot of Good work. In fact, I've been I've been asked by uh, some people in the movement to uh, help start another Catholic worker newspaper and to write for it, and uh, and it's because there is an attempt by serious Catholic workers out there to keep it Catholic. But now back to 
Dorothy Day and the convert, this raises an interesting question. One of the problems with converts is also their strength. In other words, your faith is intentional, right? You, you have chosen the Catholic faith, and usually because you have become dissatisfied with the, the vagaries and the vagueness and, and sort of moral and spiritual relativism and indifferentism that one finds in the secular world and indeed in many Protestant churches. Uh, and and, it's, and many Protestant churches are now just the mirror image of secular culture. And so you choose Catholicism. And so you come in with a fervor. And you come in with a, a, a vision. And you want to do something. And that's great. I love it. I love converts. There is a downside to that, though. And, uh, and you see that sometimes in converts that come into the church with an overly romanticized view of Rome an overly romanticized view of the unity of the Catholic Church, and therefore tend to get, I think, too upset when they see that maybe certain bishops or even Rome itself isn't exactly towing the line of, you know, traditional Catholicism and this kind of stuff. And it can lead to a kind of, a, a kind of bitterness, and it actually can then lead some of the converts to, to sort of drift away uh, from mainstream Catholicism into even, uh, you know, stronger uh, movements, or maybe even orthodoxy, as with Rod Dreher. Um, so, you know, I, I just throw, throw that in there, because one of the accusations against Dorothy Day was precisely that, that, okay, you, you have this grand vision, and you are obviously a woman of voluntary poverty and the evangelical ch councils and deep charity and deep love for the poor, and you're walking the walk, lady. You are doing it. But any insinuation that other people should follow in your footsteps, any insinuation that, in a sense, bourgeois, middle-class, suburban American existence isn't okay for the average Catholic is a form of rigorism. This is a charge that was often leveled against her. You know, quite to the contrary of what traditionalists think of her, the accusation was that she's actually a kind of diehard rigorist Catholic who has ideals that are just too high for the average Catholic. Uh, and so I, I, I want to address that because I don't think that I don't first off think that she was a rigorist, and we can talk about that a little bit more as to why I think that, but I also don't think that her, that her desire to live a radical Catholic existence was at all rooted in any kind of a romanticized vision of the church. If anything, she had a very unromantic vision of the church and uh, didn't buy into any sort of false narratives about the glories of Rome and the unity of the church and all that kind of stuff. Can I pause you real quick here, Larry, and ask what a rigorist is? What, what, how would you define that term? A, a rigorist would be somebody who is almost like a Catholic fundamentalist and who, who it, it takes everything with a, a kind of scrupulous seriousness, but then also takes every single counsel of the church as a kind of commandment. So you, you look at the spiritual councils, C-O-U-N-S-E-L-S, councils of the saints and the mystics and, and the gospels themselves, and you, you tend to then absolutize them and, and turn them into commandments so that lay people are now expected to live lives of poverty and you know, voluntary poverty and all this kind of thing, uh, and, 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 so, and, and that you should be a pacifist. Uh, as many early Christians actually were, were pacifists. Uh, 
but uh, so that that's kind of what a rigorist is a, a, a kind of confusion between those things which are merely sort of suggestions for spiritual perfection a confusion between that and what is absolutely required of us via the commandments okay that totally makes sense and so you're you're acquitting dorothy day of the charge of rigorism then <laughs> well yes to to an, to an extent that to an extent that she actually was out there thundering that lay people all needed to live like her so we need to make a distinction Dorothy Day was very, very clear that even though her chosen path was severe poverty, living in soup kitchens and whatnot, that that was her chosen path to dead, like a Mother Teresa, a lay Mother Teresa, right, uh, working in the slums and so on. She was very clear that she knew that most Catholic families could not live like that because they had responsibilities towards you know three four five in her day and age six seven eight nine kids and that you were married you know Dorothy Day you know was single it's it's much easier to do the things that she did if you are in fact not married and don't have the the burdens and obligations and duties of the marital state and she was well aware of that she did not demand that everybody slavishly imitate her way of life that everybody needs to give up their houses and their cars and everybody needs to live in a soup kitchen so there's that's why i don't think you can you could say that she was uh, a, a rigorist but there is one sense in which she does uh, want to emphasize something that I think is very important, and this this pertains then to the universal call to holiness. Dorothy Day thought, and I think rightly so, and many other people of her time agreed with her, that the church, though wise in making a distinction between the evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience, to distinguish those as councils from the Ten Commandments and, and the way of the commandments, she also thought, however, that the councils had the evangelical councils had been professionalized and clericalized and pretty much localized in the celibate clerical classes and religious female religious orders of the church so that we had a, a class of professional holy people and the idea was beginning to crop up that only celibate people could pursue the evangelical councils and those councils were not meant for the average believer what this further meant too was that the that the ethical teaching of Christ contained in the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel of Matthew, that that ethical teaching wasn't binding on everyone, that it was, a, once again, it was merely a provisional ethic for his disciples, his inner circle to live during the interim between his resurrection and his return or whatever, but it's certainly, those that Sermon on the Mount can't possibly be for everybody and so on, and this is what she disagreed with. She said, Jesus never says in the Sermon on the Mount, these are mere suggestions or counsels. He says, you heard it said of old, but here I say to you, boom, boom. And he didn't qualify it. He didn't give it any caveats. And, and he wasn't just speaking to his closest disciples. It was very clear that he was speaking to an aggregate crowd of all kinds of different people. Um, and so, and other people like the moral theologian, Servet Pinkers, the French, uh, has made this same point that we cannot 
isolate the Sermon on the Mount, and we cannot isolate the evangelical councils into the clerical classes themselves and then just consign lay people to second-class spiritual status. And this is what you saw in the church, and this is why Dorothy Day was not a rigorist. She was more of a sort of prophetic criticizer of, of that same thing that a lot of people were criticizing, this clericalization of holiness, and that it was a, a real act of contempt towards the laity to simply treat them as, as these little imperfect things that, couldn't, that needed to be patronized and given sacraments and so on, but, but not really challenged with the evangelical councils. I mean, Hans-Urs von Balthasar made this point as well in a great book of his called The Christian State of Life, uh, in which he states quite clearly that the evangelical councils, though perhaps can be lived more earnestly by someone in a religious order, nevertheless are meant for everyone. We are all called to holiness, and this is the call of Vatican II, and Peter Morn and Dorothy Day were making that call, you know, 30 years before Vatican II, that these things are not reserved to the clerical classes, that the laity are called to holiness, period, full stop. And I think this is something that we've talked about before, well, certainly the personal call to, to, to holiness, but uh, we've also talked about the fact that we, we sometimes like to lionize the pre-Vatican II church, but it's obviously not the case that things were perfect there. There was an awful lot of uh, fundamentalism going on. There was an awful lot of um, uh, there was an awful lot of people in the pews who had no idea what was going on, who who did not have a dynamic living faith, who did not understand that a call to holiness extended to them, and they thought that the holiness really was the sole purview of the clerics. And then, as we know, many of those clerics didn't think that the call to holiness applied to them either. So there was a church that was deeply awash in confusion about who the call to holiness applied to. And uh, I do, I like your point about how Dorothy Day and Peter Morin anticipated the insight of Vatican II long before Vatican II even happened. Um, and were in, in, in some ways prophetically declaring the, the personal call to holiness that belongs to all of us. So let's talk about their, their solution a little bit more. Their solution is these Catholic worker farms. So Tell me a little bit about a Catholic worker farm. Uh, you know, to to illustrate my ignorance, uh, I remember a few conversations ago I asked you, you know, where you sell your food, and you were like, "Well, we don't sell our food because we're a Catholic worker farm." So I don't know much about the Catholic worker farm movement. I I suspect I'm not alone in that. So tell me more about what a Catholic worker farm is. You know, how does it work from a, a simple economic standpoint, um, and how how did Dorothy Day and Peter Morin think that this could be a, a way of facilitating a personal call to holiness? I will, I will do that, but first, I, I, wanna, I have to say something about a point you just made in, in, in your comments about the pre-Vatican II Church uh, uh, with regard to how even many priests exempted themselves from the evangelical councils. And that, that is a result, once again, of treating the councils as mere suggestions for perfection, so that even priests began to say, well, you know, I'm not called to perfection, I'm just a diocesan priest. Or in religious orders, a certain laxity would settle in and say, well, I, I'm personally vowed to poverty, but my religious order can own 37 Mercedes Benzes for our use and have a beach house because I don't own it. I'm still living poverty. These are the kinds of little slights of hand that we're engaged in. As soon as you say those councils are mere suggestions, uh, and and that 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 is a very serious deficit in the preconciliar church. But anyway, uh, the uh, the Catholic worker farms uh, started really they were they were they were brainchild as I said uh, of Peter Morin, and the idea isn't simply as I said to grow food 
to give away to the poor. The idea is also for the Catholic worker farm to be a kind of spiritual Catholic refuge uh, from the pressures of urbanization and industrialization, for people to come and share the rhythms of the land and the prayer that goes with it, which is why, you know, on our farm we have a, a chapel and uh, an icon chapel with the Blessed Sacrament and we, because the co-owner of our farm is a priest, uh, Father John Gribowicz from the Diocese of Brooklyn, uh, who's actually joining a monastery, we can talk about he's joining the Abbey of the Genesee. Uh, but anyway, we actually pray the Liturgy of the Hours in, in that chapel. And when, when we have visitors come to visit us, we actually, you know, encourage them. We don't force them, obviously. We encourage them to share those hours with us. And so, in many, many ways, the biggest part of the ministry of any Catholic worker farm, including ours, isn't the growing of food. It's, it's more... Uh, a, a kind of lifestyle spirit, and I hate to make it sound like some sort of accessorized secular thing, but you know what I mean, a kind of spiritual lifestyle where people can come and experience the land and, and, uh, and the rhythms of a sort of Benedictine spirituality. And so to that end, Peter Morin, yeah, he wanted the farms to grow food and stuff, but he thought more important than, than the farm as such in terms of production where it was the hospitality side of the farm where people would come and he, you would have what he called roundtable discussions. Now, he did that in the city as well, around the houses of hospitality, but he certainly did it with the farms. And what he, what he meant by roundtable discussions were, you know, people coming together to support one another in their faith. Because what, what Peter Moran understood, and Dorothy Day too, is that to live a life of radical gospel living in a Catholic register requires the support of a community of, of people. It's a really hard thing to do by yourself, and not just terms of, of the logistics of it, but also psychologically. It wears on you when you think you're you know, a magisterium of one or a church of one. Uh, lonely out there toiling in the vineyard of the Lord without any support. So the roundtable discussions are there in order to, I guess today we would call it networking, so that people could get to know other like-minded people and then and stay in touch and help and support one another in various in various ministries. And that's a huge part of what we do. In fact, this is interesting. One of the things we discovered right away is that nobody needs our food. And, and, and by that, I mean, we started sending uh, produce, a lot of potatoes and so forth, into the Catholic worker house on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, and and we're, we're told, we were in, in the sort of 2013, 2014, 2015, and we were eventually told by them, we don't need your food, we have enough donations, we're swimming in donations, food donations, so we don't need your food. Okay, so then we started shopping around to local food pantries in our area, which are some connected to churches and some are just community-based in general. What we discovered there, too, is that they didn't want our food because they have sort of become industrialized. In fact, we were one day at a local food pantry near us, and we had brought baskets of cabbages and potatoes and things like that, and the, 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 the manager of the food pantry just looked at us like we had ten heads and said, well, we don't, what are we supposed to do with this? We don't have the ability to store these things. I said, oh, well, okay. And she goes, and she's very dismissively said, just set them over there. And, and then all of a sudden, a big 
truck, tractor trailer from a local grocery store chain backed up to their loading dock and unloaded pallet after pallet after pallet after pallet of food. Uh, you know, non-perishable goods, spaghetti sauces, you know, cereals, things like that. And, and this was a pattern that we saw developed in almost all food pantries. Grocery, this is a write-off for grocery stores. They take their food that is almost out of date and they give it away to these food pantries. And so we discovered very quickly that charity now has become industrialized uh, on this scale. And they didn't need our food. So we, we ended up sort of channeling our food basically through our church and other churches to identify you know, people who might need our food and, 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 and give it to them. Uh, so it, it was a real eye-opener. Uh, for us to realize, oh, geez, you know, and the, the, there's, you know, this isn't the Great Depression anymore, and, and people don't really need us to bring them our cabbages. Uh, and so we ended up spending more of our farm uh, raising animals like pigs and meat chickens and sheep and things like this than, than growing food, because we discovered that, that uh, butchered animals like meat chickens and meat ducks and pigs uh, are, um, they're much more in need. In other words, if, if I were to go to a church and say, here, I've got half a pig to give you, that's, but that, that they need that and they want that. Or yeah, because you can, you can easily, you know, cut it up and you know, make a chili or a pork oh, roast absolutely. or whatever. Or here's, you know, 10 dozen eggs. Right. And, oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll take that. We'll take that because then they can use it. They can use it in parish events or they can give it away to families in the parish and that kind of thing. But then the other advantage to having animals like the sheep and stuff is it's unbelievably, uh, it's unbelievable how connected people get to them, how to see the eyes light up on like a four-year-old kid as she or he reaches under a hen to, to, to grab an egg or to milk a goat and, and to actually see milk come out of an udder, you know, as they're milking or to pick up a baby lamb um, or to watch the pigs eat grapes that you've tossed at them. These are magical moments for a lot of people in our society who, you know, they simply equate food with a trip to Walmart, uh, you know, and, and, and that's where you get food. And uh, there's a real spiritual connection that people make when, when they come and they, and they commune with the animals. You just have to make sure the kids don't get too attached to the animals that are destined to become meat, right? <laughs> this is true, which is why we don't. We don't uh, name our pigs, and we don't oh. name our meat chickens or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I did name my pigs my, uh, the first year. I named them, though, sausage and pepperoni and things like that, so that <laughs> it, 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 their name was a functional name. Yes. Uh, and you know what? I, we used to butcher our lambs, but I don't do that anymore. Uh, because I simply found it too painful. Well, uh, you probably I, have thoughts on this, actually. I've thought a good bit about this, and about a year, year and a half ago, I think it was now, Sally and I made the conscious decision to try and buy, um, you know, eth ethically sourced, um, free-range free organic um, food, and, you know, we're still buying it from, like, the big conglomerates from the Costco's and the the, the supermarket stores. So that it's a small step, hopefully a step in the right direction. But our thinking was, you know, we want, we want to eat food that has been treated well, even before it was killed. And because it's part of our obligation to be stewards of all creation, this is part of the creation mandate that we 
find Adam and Eve receiving from God in the first chapters of Genesis. So we want to be making sure that the food we're eating has been treated well. Um, and, and I think there's something to be said for, for that. I mean, in a best case scenario, you, you raise the food you eat and you can cultivate a relationship with that animal. Uh, and then you're, you know, when you kill that animal for the protein that the animal can offer, um, it's not in a sort of, um, it's not in a emotionless way. It's not in a heartless way. It's in, it's in, a, it's in a human way, right? So you're, you're killing the animal so that you can have food to eat, but you're not doing it with a glee. You're doing it out of necessity because of the proteins that animal can provide, et cetera. And there's yeah, something, I, a lot, there's something really good to be said for, for how to do that. That's part of the reason too, why Peter Morin championed the farms, because he wanted the farms to be an example of sustainable agriculture. Once again, he was a man ahead of his time. You know, he was a back-to-the-lander ahead of his time, but he was also an advocate for sustainable uh, and organic and ethical agriculture and animal husbandry long before his time. And so this this is a key element and a key point. Um, you know, he wasn't a vegetarian. I'm not a vegetarian. Pigs are going to, for example, I don't have any uh, grave issue with, with butchering pigs. Pigs are going to die anyway. They have no sense of their own mortality. They don't sit there full of ennui and angst over their upcoming death, like, you know, in Charlotte's Web. And, and, and so if you kill them quickly and humanely, um, it's, it's not as if you're, 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 you know, engaging in this great act of murder. <clears throat> you're just sort of cutting short the pig's life a bit. Uh, uh, and 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 but I, I do have a problem with killing the lambs, uh, simply because lambs and sheep in general are very docile, and they're very trusting, and I, I feel like a betrayer when I, when I butcher one of them, in a way that I don't feel when I kill a chicken or a pig, uh, but I did feel like a grand betrayer of the trust of these beautiful trusting, docile, sweet animals that sheep are, uh, and they are. They're just wonderful animals. They're stupid as a two-by-four, but they're <laughs> really wonderful animals. Well, your description of the docility and the submission of the lambs, even as they're led to the slaughter, gives really vivid uh, imagery to the the prophecy of Christ, you know, being right. led like a lamb to and the that slaughter. That was always plain in my mind as yeah. I was leading a little lamb to the slaughter and it was, bah, bah, you know, thinking that I was going to give it something to eat or drink or something like that. No, I'm here to kill you. I, I almost felt like Judas, you know, like I said, like I was a great traitor, a great betrayer that, uh, that I was once again crucifying Christ or something. I mean, I'm not being exaggerating here. Uh, as a Catholic, that imagery was very powerful to me yeah uh and and i just uh, you know i only did it for a couple of years and i just couldn't i just could not do it anymore but i have to say too if, if anybody that's ever kept pigs knows that pigs are annoying and destructive animals and they will destroy anything which is why feral pigs are such a menace in in, in the wild right well feral pigs are awful yeah <laughs> Because they destroy every habitat that they're in, and if they're in great enough numbers, they will just lay waste to any ecosystem that they're in. And so by the time you've got a pig into October or so, and you've had it for eight months, and it has destroyed everything, and is now eating you out of house of home, and is getting aggressive and mean and nasty, uh, the, yeah, the, it's not the same as killing a lamb. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> you know. Uh, it, it's it's psychologically and I think even ethically a lot a lot easier to do that. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But um, you know, well, to, go, to make a 
point about pigs about making sure that the food that you're eating has come from ethical sourcing. It doesn't just have to do with the ethical treatment of the animal. It actually has to do with the health of the, uh, the healthfulness of the food that you're eating. So for example, pigs, pork. Pigs don't sweat. They have no sweat glands. And they therefore excrete all of their toxins that are in their body simply through their fecal matter and their urine. And, and sometimes their system just can't keep up. So toxins can build up over time in, in, in a pig's meat uh, if they are under stress. Uh, if they are, however, fed properly, and in moderation, and they're not stressed out, then they can eliminate most of the toxins from their system. But when pigs are stressed, their bodies release various hormones uh, that affect the taste and the healthfulness of the meat. And those hormones are very difficult for the pig to excrete and end up in the meat, which is why if you've ever raised your own pigs and tasted the meat, you can tell what a qualitative, it's almost like you've never tasted pork before uh, compared to what you buy in a grocery store. That's because the stuff you buy in the store, that stuff usually is from highly stressed out pigs. That totally makes sense. I had no idea, certainly about the details of, you know, pigs sweating or, um, or not, I guess, not being able to sweat and then building up the toxins, but it makes sense. And I feel like, you know, anytime you talk to someone who has had grass-fed beef for example right from a farm from a farm that lets their cows graze for as long as they want on the choicest of grasses that they want compared to a a uh, you know massive slaughterhouse that um gets yeah. its cows from farms that just slam them all together and feed them some corn-based slop to eat you know i mean um yeah. th there's a difference in the taste and it's it's tangible and and it makes sense uh, now, like the evolutionary biologists would give you all these reasons why that's the case. And the Catholic would probably affirm most of those things that the evolutionary biologists would say, but say that this is a reflection of the natural order that was instituted, right? And when we treat the animals in accordance with the way they should be treated, uh, we can reap the benefits of that. And, and that's, that's why the biological yeah. functions are the way they are. And it really, there really is a, a spiritual Catholic component to all of this because it emphasizes the sacramental nature of everything and and you know there are the seven sacraments of course but then everything that is good true and beautiful has a sacramental quality to it and as do animals uh and and the crops you grow and, and so on uh, on the farm uh that that when we, when people come to visit us in other words we encourage them to see the spiritual elements the sacramental iconic elements that are at play here well, I know we're almost out of time, Larry, but as a final question, uh, and we, we've gotten, you know, not, I, w I won't say far afield, but we've, we've gone out into the farmer's field uh, talking about these, these yeah. issues, and I, I enjoy diving deep and just learning about the worker farm, so thank you for that. But, you know, you mentioned that Dorothy Day acknowledged openly that this is not a lifestyle that every married person could do, that, you know, married people with kids could do. So, you know, Take my wife and I, for, for an example. Uh, we would love to run a Catholic worker farm. Uh, one obvious problem is I do not know the first thing about farming. Um, another problem is that there, that we're married. First of all, we have you know familial obligations that are entailed by that situation. And we have four kids. Um, so it's hard to envision a even a transition. And I don't know what that would look like for us to go run a Catholic worker farm. So for people like us, now maybe you're going to say like it's easier than you think and you guys should think about doing a Catholic worker farm and I'm open to that. But uh, but maybe that's not the answer. I don't think it's the answer just from a sort of like, um, you know, categorical imperative standpoint. Uh, 
it's not the it's not the solution that everybody should become a farmer necessarily. We have other vocations in society that we need fulfilled. So for for someone who's not going to be running a Catholic worker farm, what can we learn about the life of Dorothy Day about the you know from the life of Peter Morin about the universal call to holiness and how it applies to us in our situations? Simple, uh, simplicity of life, and and Dorothy Day often wrote about this as did Peter Morin that that. Uh, Obviously, there is great value in the evangelical councils, especially the one of voluntary poverty. But being aware that families can't just, you know, give everything away and live day-to-day, hand-to-mouth, that would be irresponsible. The goal is to uh, choose professions that don't involve you overly, all right, in in the nexus of of evil, if you want to put it that way, that the sort of consumeristic sort of America represents. In other words, it may not be a good idea for someone who wants to follow Dorothy Day to become a, a car salesman for Porsches, you know, or, or, or you, know, uh, you know, Lamborghinis. Uh, that, that, that symbolically sends a, a, a bad message. So in other words, I, I think Dorothy would say there are certain professions that you should not engage in. Uh, but all that being said, and that's prudential, that would be up to each person, it's simplicity of life. It is trying to live as simply as you can, and to, and to, when you go to buy anything or purchase any sort of thing, to ask yourself the question, okay, do I really need this? Or, even if I need it, so you want to go buy a television, uh, do I really need the 76-inch screen that costs $2,000, $3,000? Or can I get by with the, you know, 50-inch screen for $200? That, that kind of thing. Those are the kinds of choices my wife and I were making for many, many years, even before we started the Catholic Worker Farm. Some of that was out of necessity. I mean, we were just poor professors and didn't make much money, and so it was just financial prudence on our part. But part of it was by choice, too. Simplicity of life, simplicity of life. And, of course, that's going to vary by vocation. I wrote a blog post for, for some former students of mine that were troubled by Dorothy Day, and the blog post was called uh, Five Kids in a Golden Doodle, which is what these people have, and they live in Florida. And uh, they're little Tom and uh, Natalie Lelio, great, great, great parents of five kids. And uh, I said to them, you know, I said in the blog too, you know, the mere act of having children, and lots of them, is an act of voluntary poverty, as any as any parent of, of a lot of kids can tell you. Uh, and, and, and so don't discount that. I mean, parenthood is its own crucifixion, its own cross, its, its own self-imposed poverty. Uh, because you can't have uh, children without making those kinds of sacrifices. And therefore, well, I think one of the counsels would be, even if you only have two or three children, uh, don't... Don't overextend to say, oh, I've only got three kids, so that means now I can buy the, the six-bedroom McMansion in a, in a nice, expensive neighborhood that I can't really afford and have two really, really nice cars that I can't really afford, and we go on trips we can't really afford, and we have all kinds of contraptions we can't really afford, and we live on credit cards, and we're constantly in debt. That's the kind of life that she would say, don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, embrace the sacrifice that family inherently is and to orient your life around creating uh, a domestic church, creating relationships 
between the spouses and the children that are truly and genuinely wholesome, Catholic, dignified, and so on. That is a path that is in its own way, uh, in its own way, sacrificial. Now, one thing you can do, though, too, if in terms of wanting to, you know, maybe move out of the city, do something a little Catholic farmy. You know, even my wife and I only started the Catholic worker farm after we were empty nesters. Uh, so I don't want to be a hypocrite here. Uh, but one of the things that, uh, there's, there's a related movement today called homesteading. In other words, you don't have to have a full-blown Catholic worker farm where, you know, you advertise yourself as such and come one, come all, you've got all these people showing up all the time and so on. You can just go and try and, you know, if, if the means allow you to buy two or three acres. Uh, this is what my sister did in Nebraska. She now raises horses on, on about, I don't know, five acres, something like that. She doesn't have a great, big, huge estate. Uh, but a lot of it, so if you have like just some land in an area that's zoned for it, you can have, you can have chickens, you can have milk goats, you know, you can have all those things that are actually very spiritually beneficial, I think. And, and so it's a kind of halfway house in between suburban life and running a full-blown Catholic worker farm to simply try and, and do some homesteading. Even sometimes you can do urban homesteading with, uh, you know, cooperative gardens and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm intrigued by these urban homesteading projects. I think they're pretty interesting. But I love your counsel in general. Uh, you know, I think from from my own standpoint, and everyone has their own vices that they struggle with. But I sometimes struggle with materialism. I think it's a really, it's a very, yep. it's a very common vice in today's day and age where uh, we have so many means of seeing the affluence of others and desiring those things. It's very hard not to be covetous. Um, and so, so I mean, some things that I've found helpful are just to to, to make very conscious decisions uh, in the moment when you could buy the nicer thing to buy the less nice thing. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the poverty that the church extols is poverty of spirit. And poverty of spirit doesn't necessarily mean having nothing, right? Because you can have nothing and not have poverty of spirit. You can have, you can have nothing and still desire everything. Um, oh, yeah. you know, How many poor people are like that? Right, yeah, exactly. Um, on the other hand, you know, you can have things, but also be completely detached from the material things that you have so that if, if everything were to take, were to be taken away from you in the blink of an eye, you'd be fine. And so I think back to this, this young rich man who, this, this young rich man whom Jesus was um, counseling and Jesus told him to sell all that he had and give to the poor. And that man walked away sad. And our takeaway from that is that, you know, we should, we should give, we should sell all that we have and take and, and give it away to the poor. Um, and that's, that's. I think part like partly true. I don't think that's a universal prescription that applies to everybody. Although I also think that we sometimes think it doesn't apply as much as it should to each of us. But the broader point is that Jesus as a discerner of hearts and minds understood how attached this young man was to his things and was telling this young man specifically, you need to sell all that you have and give to the poor. And we hear that, that we read that that man goes away sad. Why? Because he's attached to the material things. So his problem was not merely having things because if you have things, you can potentially use those things to enrich the lives of others, to give away, to donate to the poor, etc. cetera. Uh, but his problem was that he was attached to it. He didn't want to let go of it and give it to the poor. Oh, absolutely. So, it, you know, Jesus wasn't necessarily saying, no, all of you need to give all your money away. It was uh, uh, in some ways a message directed simply at that rich young man. Right. Looking into his heart. All that said, the New Testament casts a definitely a, a jaundiced eye at wealth. I agree, uh, yeah. There's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, 
Jesus says, you know, easier for a rich man, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, and the disciples say, well, who can be saved? And she's, well, you know, it's possible with God. So he's saying, you know, I'm not making an absolute statement here that all rich people are going to hell. But let's just say, man, if you have money, you're, you're going to be attached to it. So right, exactly. So, yeah, based on what we were saying before, right, poverty of spirit, it's very, very hard to have poverty of spirit if you have a ton of things. Yeah, very well, difficult to uh, do that. I know that's true in my case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it, it is. I mean, one of the reasons why, again, being kind of vulnerable here, but one of the reasons why the Catholic worker ideas are so attractive to me is because I know I have this tendency towards materialism. I know I have this desire. I know I have this love for things. And I, I think, you know, I think about uh, the future of my life uh, in which maybe the best way to uh, to rid myself of that unhealthy attachment and to achieve poverty of spirit would be to intentionally divest myself of all of my things. Um, no, that's key. I mean, that's why we did it. I mean, yeah. Because I I was a professor living a you know pretty cushy life, going to Rome every year on trips, and because I love Rome, it's my favorite city. And just waking up one day and realizing, you know what, this is getting me nowhere spiritually. Yeah. And, and so we we took the step. Well, uh, I like your example. Thank you for setting that example, and thanks for walking us through the life of Dorothy Day and Peter Morin. Um, I guess I didn't think of asking you this, but I should. Any uh, any resources you'd recommend for people to understand more? I have sitting on my desk here, Dorothy Day's The Long Loneliness, which I have not read, but my wife has. And so we have a copy of it. Is that a good starting point or any I other resources? That's what I always recommend to people. Read her autobiography, The Long Loneliness. It's, it's wonderful. It's, it's her version of Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain. It, it, it's a great little book. I love The Seven Story Mountain. So, uh, yeah, with that oh, recommendation. Uh, so yeah, it's Dorothy Day's The Long Loneliness. Uh, I don't know if it's still published. This is an older edition that I have, but um, if oh, yeah, it's still it's published. Okay. It. Yeah. So I'll Absolutely. post a link to it um, where you can pick up a copy for yourself um, and, and do that. Uh, and thank you for joining me, Larry. Uh, to my listeners, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Creedle. If you have any questions for me or want to provide any feedback, send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedlepodcast.com. I'll be back next week with another episode, and I'll be back in a few weeks to uh, be joined by Larry for another discussion about something, topic TBD, but probably nature and grace, uh, nature if we can grace. Get, yeah, get that lined up. So, All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. To my listeners, God bless you.